This is the Cascade Hiker Podcast. Find us over at CascadeHikerPodcast.com. I'm a country boy with the soft side. My heart wanders up north to the hillside. Now I've never made anyone quite as beautiful as you. I'm your host, Rudy Gets It. I'm here to inspire you to get out on the trail. You putting in two-mile hikes, five-mile hikes? Are you still on the couch? Come on, let's go on a backpacking trip. I'm going to introduce you to some folks that have done that and a whole lot more. All right, next on the Cascade Hiker Podcast, we got uh, two gentlemen sitting here. What are your names? And where are you from? I'm Mac Bates. I'm from Snohomish. I'm Jim Liming. I was once from Snohomish, but now I'm more from Seattle. All right. Well, uh, just a disclosure here. Um, Mac Bates was on, on a podcast earlier, I believe in the 40s. Uh, can't remember the exact number right offhand. I should have looked that up. But either way, um, the, he wrote the book about the lookout and the history of Mount Three Fingers here in uh, Snohomish County, uh, talking about the history of Darrington and a lot of stuff. So we had a really cool conversation about that. And he brought his, uh, his friend Jim along today. So we're just going to kind of chat about some uh, uh, hiking of yesteryears and hiking of today. And uh, Jim brought some, some cool pictures here. Uh, you said you got those off your, your wall at home, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was an early morning trip, and I just grabbed those off my bedroom wall. One is uh, a picture that was just taken summer before last when Mac and I and some family members made a trip over Crater Mountain in the North Cascades on our way to uh, Devil's Dome and then back down to Ross Lake. So it's just a picture of taken from near the summit of Crater Mountain, which was also a, an old fire lookout site that you might have read about. Another, how many, uh, well, how many uh, miles was that trip? How many days were you guys out? It, well, was, it was four days. Uh, it, it was 30-some miles, but uh, 30 of the hardest miles <laughs> I'd hiked in quite a long time. Yeah, it was a typical trail that you run into that was maybe... Uh, 50 or 100 years ago, engineered for horses and mules, but these days it's even difficult for hikers. Um, but it was a wonderful four days, oh. wonderful and that weather, is, and, a, and that, a certainly a good stretch. That's a deep section of trail back there, right? That's right. I mean, it's it's nowhere near any roads. I mean, you're, you're really deep in that area, right? Yeah, it's north of Highway 20, north of the North Cross State Highway, and the way, the way we did it was to... Uh, leave some cars at Ross Dam, uh, at the parking lot above Ross Dam, and then and we left other cars further east on the highway at the, uh, at the trailhead for Canyon. Crater Mountain. Yeah. yeah. And uh, then we had arranged for a boat trip back down Ross Lake, the boat taxi service in the National Park. Yeah. That area up there is, I mean, I don't think people realize how really just, Unpopulated. I mean, there's nothing out there, right? I mean, above Highway 20, north of Highway 20, there. It well, is it, true. Yeah. In terms of roads, no, it's a it's a long stretch of uh, roadless area, and it and spectacular relief. It's uh, you know the the backside of Jack Mountain uh, is with you the entire way, and it's just sharp and and rugged and glaciered and it's beautiful, beautiful country. The the last night out on the trail, we intersected uh, with a trip I had taken with my parents in 1961. Oh, wow. And 
shortly after I got back, I, was a, I finally found the old slides my dad had taken. And it was amazing. The last night, uh, we were at Devil's Pass. Pass. And we were sitting at this campfire, and I looked at it, and there was a picture of my parents and I, you know, in 1961, sitting in that same campsite. It was, uh, it was pretty amazing. Right. Blast of memory. Yeah, it's pretty wild country, and luckily at that particular spot, you know, it's fairly, fairly dry country because you're either on the crest or just east of the crest, and of course it was August, so uh, water was always a, a concern, but at that particular camp at Devil's Pass, uh, either a guidebook or a map, I think a map told us that there would be a spring just to the north of the campsite, and so we went off a, an intersecting trail and followed it maybe uh, three or four hundred yards. And sure enough, there's this little, this little spring, that just a trickle of water coming out of the rocks and the moss and just enough to fill your water bottle if you're patient. You know? I, think, I think listeners <laughs> could probably imagine it, you know, having been on hikes before and you see those kind of springs like that. Yep. Oh, those are cool trips. Yep. And uh, then you also, uh, you also grab this, uh, this picture that Tad... A whole bunch of stuff on it, and uh, one you know some of your daughters on there, or, or one you have one daughter, two daughters, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I just grabbed that picture off my bedroom wall this morning, and uh, I was too lazy to take the pictures out of the frame, so they're somewhat unrelated. But one is a picture of my daughter when she, she's now 39 years old, and this is a picture of when she's probably about five or six, and we were, or maybe even less, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was. It was, it, it was at her grandfather's house, my dad's house in Snohomish, and it's just um, uh, a morning picture when we were about to head off to uh, the Verlot area to go on a hike. And She's got uh, her dolls with her and her cowboy boots and stuff. That's right. Yeah, yeah. she's carrying her doll and, her, and wearing her cowboy boots. And um, then there's another picture of my um, other daughter who uh, is a a hiker today i mean she she's uh she's living in north dakota but every chance she gets she either's hiking in minnesota or she's hiking in canada or she's hiking out here in the northwest in the summertime and that particular particular picture is my daughter and me and our dog on the trail below the green mountain lookout back by uh, the glacier peak wilderness in eastern snohomish county that's one of my uh, favorite hikes Jim's dad uh, grew up in Granite Falls right. and uh, was a lookout on Mount Pilchuck in 1939? 38. 38. Yeah. For one season? For one season on the lookout, and then the next season he worked out of the ranger station at Verlot. Um, Did he ever talk about uh, his season up there? And any stories? Oh, yeah, lots. In fact, um, he... In those days, you know, that was a more remote place than it is today because there was no road up the side of Mount Pilchuck, so the, the trail actually started down at uh, Robe, right on the, on the river. Apparently there was an old uh, railroad bridge or something that crossed the river at that point, so you, could, you didn't have to ford the river, but you started the trail right there, and it was about a seven-mile hike to the top of Mount Pilchuck. And, you know, he, it would be a, an event worthy of taking a photograph if he had a visitor. <laughs> so uh, 
I remember one of the photographs he had was a, a troop of Boy Scouts from Everett um, with their leader, and they're all standing around the lookout cabin. And he, he had lots of stories to tell. The, maybe the one that I remember was at the end of the season when he, when it was started to rain and maybe snow, and he was, he got a phone call from the Verlot Ranger Station down below telling him to, it was time to close up the shutters and close up the lookout and head out. So in those days, he could also patch through on the telephone system that went down the mountain. He could talk to the ranger station, and the ranger station could then talk to his parents in Granite Falls. So he could actually talk on the phone to his parents. So he talked to, to his dad, to, or stepdad, to, to meet him on the highway in the evening because he said that he would be coming down out of the lookout. For some reason, my dad thought, he looked at his map and he thought that maybe a shorter way down the mountain would be to just go overland down to Heather Lake and then, and then uh, take the Heather Lake Trail down to the highway. So that was the, that, rather than take the seven mile trail down to Robe, he thought that he could make a shortcut. And he said that he went down and down and down and he stepped out on one of those small alpine trees that kind of grow horizontal before they turn vertical. And it was lucky that he was just standing on the, in the right spot because Heather Lake appeared below him maybe three or 400 feet below Oh, him. man. So he realized that he uh, couldn't go that way. And so then he headed due west across the, maybe the upper ski slopes, you know, the, what are now the, what used to be the ski slopes. And he, he intersected the lookout trail finally, but uh, by then it was getting dark. And he said that the only way that he could really tell where the trail was when he was down in the high trees was to look up and see the stars were the in between the trees, and that that helped him uh, get down the mountain. His his dad was still driving up and down the highway looking for him, but oh, finally man. they reunited. That was one of the stories that he liked to tell. <laughs> That's crazy, yeah. And uh, you know, did he ever mention, because I've heard a lot about that area uh, during that time uh, about some like hunting cabins and stuff in those areas up there on the cliff tops. Uh, do you remember him mentioning anything about that? No, not, not hunting cabins. Um, there was a trail shelter or a cabinet where the state park is, where the end of the road is now, that was called the Meadows, and there was a cabin there so that hikers and trail crews and so on could stop and and rest or even spend the night before going on up to the cabin. But um, I don't remember him telling stories about hunters' cabins. Yeah. I know that um, Harry Bedall, the legendary uh, settler up in the, up on the uh, sock, on the, yeah. uh, had a, I don't know, it was a hunting, hunting cabin or a mining cabin uh, just below uh, the, uh, west face of Sloan Peak right. that uh, yeah yeah one time Mac and I went up uh, Jumbo Mountain out of Darrington oh yeah, yeah. There, was, Jumbo. there was no trails though no it was a climb I mean you started you you started on uh, the trail toward uh, What's up there, like Squire Creek huh? we, were on, we were on Squire Creek yeah you're right we were heading up toward the Squire Creek yeah. Pass Trail and anyway we branched off right away and headed up uh, jumbo peak and we came upon uh, just the shell of a
cabin that was probably a hunter's cabin. It looked like the kind of thing that maybe somebody would put a tarp over, uh, you know, when they were, and it was out in the middle of nowhere, you know, and it, it yeah. was old and abandoned, yeah. I bet you there's a lot of those out there. Probably, probably so. Probably deteriorating. Yeah. Uh, Jumbo Mountain from, from Darrington, as you're in the town, uh, has just this really unique ridge line. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the picture here. Right. Uh, just one of those where I can just imagine a trail right on there. Sometimes you just look at the mountains and you think, oh, man, those ridges, I can just see a trail going right through those trees on that ridge. And it's kind of cool to think about all these different trails out there. Yeah, well, uh, Jim and I met when we were in sixth grade. And, and part of the thing, that, one of the things that drew us together was our love of, of hiking. We were both hikers by that time. Our, both our fathers had taken us into the mountains. My dad had taken me in for uh, multi-day trips. And uh, I don't know, I think most of your hiking was day hikes. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, 50-some years later, we're still getting out together. Uh, we've covered a lot of territory in the North Cascades and Central Cascades. A lot of misadventures. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, when you guys were in sixth grade and started kind of hiking together, was there any, because you think about today's uh, children that are in middle school age, um, uh, that uh, they, maybe parents wouldn't necessarily drop them off at a trailhead or anything, but did, were you guys doing any of that back then? Because I know times have changed. I think the first time we really went out on our own was we were probably freshmen in high school uh, for, uh, for extended. We, we, we hiked the Cascade, what was then called the Cascade Crest Trail. Now it's called the PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail. We hiked it from Stevens Pass to Kennedy Hot Springs or the, the Darrington area. And, that and was the summer before we had started. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we'd started uh, right. from the Seattle. Seattle up. Uh, Fire Creek Pass. Fire Creek Pass, Over, and then yeah, yeah and around Glacier Peak, and down into Kennedy Hot Springs, and mm -hmm. then a side trip up to, and that was what th Lake three, Fern. Three nights, four days, something yeah. like that, and then the following summer it was a week long trip. And, so, and we just had whatever we could find. Uh, we had my dad's old canvas tent, probably from the 1930s wow this, canvas oh it was oh yeah this huge and uh we had trapper nelson's oh the backpacks yeah and uh and no good hiking boots you know no and, and <laughs> cotton sleeping bags these big and there were no camp stoves in those days no. so we we built fires and we'd have a we'd try to cook something on a fire i remember we camped at micah lake and there was it was still snow covered and there, the only campsite was on the rocks. And I remember <laughs> we, the, our tent was probably maybe two and a half feet off the ground. You know, we, we couldn't, uh, we didn't pitch much of a tent. And then our, we brought spaghetti <laughs> and, and we couldn't, you know. Sure. We ended up eating this gelatinous goo that night with yeah. as much sauce as we could put on it. And, uh, and then crawled into our, our uh, cotton bags. And at the time, we might have had foam rubber pads, but it would be a number of years before I would use them for anything but headrests and then wonder why the heck I was so doggone cold <laughs> in the morning. Yeah. A little slow on the uptake. 
Yeah, I think maybe that summer my mother might have been concerned how we were going to survive for four days on our own or something. But I remember um, my dad knew that I had four cans of Spam in my pack so that he knew that we wouldn't starve. Oh, man. That's just, it's so interesting to hear those stories because, uh, you know, times have really changed. I mean, there was no companies making freeze-dried meals. And like you said, there wasn't even any backpacking stoves. No. Well, it, the, when I was in sixth grade and did that trip uh, up out of Ross Lake with my parents, that was the first uh, freeze-dried food we'd ever, ever had before. And it was awful. It, it, it was just awful. I remember we went down to REI, which at that time was this little shop above what was the old Roosevelt Theater, and our clerk was Jim Whitaker, the oh, guy, wow. guy who helped us. He was also managing the place, and I mean, he, that's how small REI was. It was yeah, a teeny in, enter, enterprise even then. Yeah, I don't know how much you want to talk about ancient history, but in those days, <laughs> oh, of course. In those days, there was not. It wasn't just equipment and freeze-dried food that was lacking. It was also information that was lacking. You know? Oh, right. Because now you can find guidebooks, you can find uh, internet maps, you can find uh, all kinds of things. And sometimes I think there's no mystery left in the world. But in those days. Um, you could call the ranger station in Darrington and maybe try to get some information about uh, the condition of a trail or the condition of a road or whether or not something was snow-free or whether it was still choked with snow. But that information was kind of sketchy. Um, Mac and I, uh, on, the, on the drive up here today, we were talking about how you know, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, there was so much road development on the national forests that for logging and so on that you, trails were being lost because roads were finding other ways to get into the wilderness. Now, you know, in the, in the, in the year 2018, it's kind of the reverse. The, the roads have often been abandoned and you don't know if you're gonna get to the trailhead because you don't know if the road is going to be there. Yeah. Yeah, with the, we were talking about how the numbers of people have just, you know, grown exponentially that get out into the wilderness, uh, and yet less and less money is expended to maintain trails. In fact, it becomes, you know, the job of the Washington Trails Association to yeah. do a lot of the work that Volunteer was once done effort. by the Forest Service, and the Forest Service used to be a great employer, summer employer of young people. My dad worked for the Forest Service in the 40s, my sister in the 70s, and my brother for one summer as well. It was a great summer job, and uh, you just don't see Forest Service employees out on the trail anymore. Well, it's rare, yeah. I've, I mean, I've caught them, but yeah, I mean, they're definitely, the funding's not there, and, and, and it sure has changed. Sixmoondesigns.com. Hey, I wanted to talk about the Gatewood Cape. Um, it's a it's a shelter, uh, basically just like a solo tarp. It's 10 ounces, but it also doubles as, um, as rain gear. So you can actually wear this as like a poncho. Hey, that's that's pretty cool. I, I, I'm just kind of surfing on their uh, website, sixmoondesigns.com and kind of ran across this. So if you need a 10 ounce tarp that you can also wear as rain gear, <laughs> this is this is the coolest thing I've seen, honestly. Uh, they've got the new version for 2018 and it says here uh, it's the only one of its kind. 
It's been in, it was introduced in 2006, and it's been carried over hundreds of thousands of trail miles. So uh, join the rest of the crew out there. Go to sixmoondesigns.com and follow them on Instagram as well. Tell them the Cascade Hiker Podcast sent you. And like Jim was saying with those roads, I mean, man, you think about just in our little neck of the woods here, uh, you, you guys talked about Kennedy Hot Springs. I mean, before it got wiped out, the road was gone for already and and now it's now the, the hot springs is gone but uh but man that that road's washed out and you think about uh well three fingers uh you know that road's washed yeah. out or the bridge you know is is in dis, dis disarray and sure yeah there's a lot of a lot of uh fun hikes that that have gone gone the wayside yeah even the Seattle river road was closed for about 10 years i think from what 2003 to 2013 i think they finally reopened yeah. it after a 10-year absence and I know a couple years ago we uh, hiked up on uh, uh, Meadow Mountain. Oh yeah, and uh, the, uh, the the Three one. Fingers Meadow Mountain. No, no. The, uh, the, the other one. Meadow Mountain. Yeah. The other Meadow Mountain, and by by Kenny Hot Springs. Right, area. and the first five miles was on the old road, uh, which was a, a little disappointing, but it wasn't bad. Yeah, road walking is easy walking, but you're looking at. Uh, second growth timber and you're looking at uh, the views you're looking you're going through old clear cuts you know and so you lose the views sure yeah and then the road might take you a long way out of your way uh, <laughs> compared to where you're trying to get to yeah that uh i believe you can now access that from uh Oh, what's the pass? Rat, rat trap yeah pass? yeah, yeah rat trap pass. i've heard that yeah i haven't uh, i've been to the trailhead back in there and uh, there was like one car. It was the middle of the summer, so I don't think a lot of people are using it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, that's the trail that. Uh, well, let's not tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> now, now you guys were talking about the Seattle River Trail uh, Road, and um, didn't you guys have like a really epic story about doing the Ptarmigan Traverse? Oh, sure. I, I, I ahead, think Mac. almost any of our long trips ended up having some epic aspect to it. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, I think when both Jim and I uh, became mountaineers in college, and so we expanded our range uh, in deeper into the trailless areas, and the, of course the Ptarmigan Traverse was the classic, and um, you know it had been this traverse that had been first uh, completed by a group of Boy Scouts back in the 30s, and uh, we were uh, excited to do it, but weren't sure, you know, because it was even, we didn't, we weren't sure that where we were going in, in, in a general yeah. way, and uh, so every day uh, was... Route finding. Yeah. Sure. Every day was a question mark. Yeah, you start on a trail off the Seattle River Road, you went up the Downey Creek Trail to its end, and then you have a... Up by Dome Peak there? Yeah, on the way oh. toward Dome Peak, right? And then you head north across, what, the Chickaman Glacier, right? Right. And then the Laconte Glacier, and eventually you end up at Cascade Pass yeah. and come out at uh, Marble Mount. But it's a lot of off-road, no-trail yeah. climbing. 
So yeah, we had an epic time. Well, the, fir- the first day was uh, it was about twelve miles to Bachelor Meadows, and we had heavy packs because we were climbing. We had climbing gear and ropes and crampons, and but we were young. Although my dad was with us, uh, and wasn't there somebody else too? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a fellow by the name of John, and uh, who Jim had invited on the trip thinking it would be good if we had two rope teams of four and um two, that, two rope teams of two each yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and uh, it was uh for a while he we had heard he wasn't going to be able to make it because his wife wanted him to paint the house uh but he eventually she said no 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 well I'll go on, go on the hike mm-hmm. and that first day Oh, a couple of miles before our uh, Bachelor Meadows, he collapsed on the trail. And uh, Jim and I ended up shouldering most of his pack, carrying the heaviest packs I've ever carried those last two miles. Uh, And miraculously, he felt a whole lot better. (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, John was, uh, he he seemed to have bad luck following him. he and my dad, at one point, above Yang Yang Lakes, got off the trail, and John dropped his pack, and my father had to go down into this crevice to get it, and, and they, it was... Uh, and he, yeah, he, John was a co-worker of mine, and um, seemed to be physically fit, and so on, seemed to be a... And he had graduated, I believe, from the Mountaineer's basic climbing course, so he had, you know, he had the equipment, and he had the... Uh, technical, the technical training, I guess, but um, he was kind of frail, we found out. Uh, but the Mac didn't finish the story about uh, his wife first wanting him to paint the house. Um, when it became apparent that he could go, he came into work one day and he said, he says, you're not going to believe it. He said, my wife painted the house. This is when you got back? No, this is before. Oh, oh, okay. So I can go. I can go. My wife <laughs> painted the house. So we went on our trip, and it was about a week-long trip, right? Yeah, eight days. When we got back. Did, couple, he, did he go the whole eight days? He went, yeah. He made the whole trip with us, yeah. Yeah, we had, uh, we, had uh, we arranged it with a, a group that was heading from the north to the south, and we went from the south to the north, and then we met them. Uh, halfway in between and exchanged car keys so that we took their cars back and they took our cars back. Yeah, it was a successful trip. But a couple of weeks later, at work, I guess, I saw him and and I said, I said, that was a miracle that your wife painted the house. And he said, well, turns out she didn't paint the house. Her boyfriend painted the house and he's moved in now. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So, so he was. Uh, he was had the probably the worst luck of any mountaineer I've ever met. We uh, we ended up spending two hours, two two hours, two days, pinned down uh, on on Laconte. on the Lacanti Glacier, uh, just a god awful storm that uh, dumped a bunch of snow on us and almost forced us out early, but the weather cleared. Just as we were getting ready to head down, we were going to head down the South Fork of the Cascade River instead of going continuing on. 
uh, sun came out and the rest of the trip. It, that's, you know, so many of these trips we've taken, you know, the weather has always played a key role. Uh, yeah. What do you think about now today uh, hearing about people doing it in one day or, or you know, kind of, kind of running through there and you got you said eight days yeah we well no i mean i'm not trying to say that as in <laughs> yeah. you guys uh, we, weren't doing it fast enough or whatever but uh, what do you guys think about the difference there it's a different ethic uh, it's kind of the difference between uh, i don't I, I think it's kind of an east coast thing that came to the west coast where people try to hike a distance in a record short period of time they they the people people boast about doing 20 miles a day or 25 miles a day or something and when we were hiking things like that we weren't necessarily trying to break any records for speed we were you know smelling the roses along the way <laughs> and we were taking our time Mac and I were talking about that too on the car ride up here today that some people Specialized. They hike because they like to identify all of the plants and, and uh, fl flora and fauna that they're going to find along the way. Some people hike because they hunt and they, and they specialize in that. Some people are uh, high lake fishermen and they, they hike because of that. But I think Mac and I are both kind of just generalists. We like to be out and we, we really like the element of surprise. I, I'm I'm always I'm always like to, I always like to be surprised on a hike, and I always am surprised either by something that we didn't know was there, or some obstacle that we didn't expect, or uh, you know. We can even repeat hikes. We can go back to some place where we've been before, but it'll be a different season. It'll be different conditions. It'll be different weather. It will be di with different people. So, I I just like to be surprised. One year we uh, went. Up and we were up Lost Creek Ridge, oh, yeah. and uh, we were going to go up and then come back out. And we got up into the meadows, and and Lost Creek Ridge is this spectacular meadowed ridge. And at least at that time in the early '70s, it hadn't been traveled a lot. And so we we just laid our uh, sleeping bags yeah. out on the meadow and slept under the stars that night. And the next day we just we're heading east on the trail just seeing how far it went and at some point it we said well let's just keep going yeah and we uh be, and we just wanted to see where it ended and you know eventually we're up at lake burn and we said well let's just drop down to kennedy hot Springs. somebody will give us a ride back <laughs> and so you know, after a long day, sure enough, you know, at Kennedy Hot Springs, we got a ride out to the mountain loop, and then things got a little hairier. People would wave as we stuck out our thumbs, uh, but they wouldn't stop. And at, after a while of this, I remember one car drove by us, and I just dropped to the my knees in supplication and held my hands up. And I... I I wondered if they thought I was having an attack of some sort, but they stopped and <laughs> reluctantly gave us a ride back to the back to the North Fork of the Sock. North Road. Fork of the Sock, and at that point, we figured, well, we we'll hike our five miles back, get his. He had a little Renault. Yeah, I had a, a little Renault. teeny tiny car, and <laughs> uh, as we started, we just dropped our packs and we were going to head up the road a little 
VW Bug drives by and and uh, they said, where are you going? Well, we're going up to Lost Creek Ridge Trail. And they said, well, we don't have any room, but you can stand on the bumper. So we stood on the bumper of their VW van and rode five miles. Got VW it. Bug. It was a bug. Bug, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. And uh, <laughs> so those sorts of adventures. Of course, we also had the sorts of surprises where trails would dead end or, or one time on a trip, this wasn't with Jim, uh, we were going <laughs> to, this before we did the, uh, the uh, Traverse, the Ptarmigan Traverse, I went up with my brother and another dear friend of ours, and, uh, and for some reason I thought the trail was, Where were you going? We were going to go up uh, to Dome Peak. Oh, the same trail. Same trail, yeah. And for some reason I got it in my head that the trail... Uh, up, not Bachelor Creek, oh. uh, Downey, Downey, Creek Downey Creek was on the west side. And so we hefted our big packs and started following this little way trail. And after about a half hour, my brother Andy, who has a very low-key, dry sense of humor, <laughs> said, I'm turning around. <laughs> this is, this is, if this is the trail, I'm out. And so we turned around. And what got back to the car, drove over the bridge, and there was, of course, this huge trail head, <laughs> this oh, man. Cadillac of a trail. Uh, I remember by that time it was late afternoon, and we ended up <laughs> we we ended up being benighted below Bachelor Meadows and uh, uh, camping right in the middle of the trail. But the next morning, when we hiked up to Bachelor Meadows, Meadows, there was this big family there, and. Sure couldn't have been more friendly to us and it turned it was Willie Unsold the great Everest mountaineer and uh, you know he must have known we were neophytes at best Uh, you know but we were asking about uh, Spire Peak and he I'll never forget how he treated us as if we were you know peers that here's a guy who had climbed the west ridge of Everest and uh, but he, he he yeah. Gave us his respect and told us what to do, and we just about got ourselves killed the next day. But <laughs> those sorts of you know the sorts of adventures, some of them were comical. And yeah, I think that people used to be very very friendly, congenial to one one another when when they would uh, when we would encounter somebody on the trail, you know, five miles in or something. Um, they were invariably happy to see somebody else and so you'd always at least talk for a few minutes before moving on my dad when he was on the lookout up on Mount Pilchuck had very few visitors but he he told me that he um, one time was having a nice conversation with somebody and was surprised that they were so friendly and and the response was that Henri people don't make it up this high on the mountain. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. N- nowadays, you're saying they do? <laughs> <laughs> well, nowadays, I think you quite often pass somebody on the trail, and they've got their earbuds in, and they're listening to their iPod, and they're kind of going on their own way. Not everybody stops and greets one another on the trail anymore, but there are more people on the trails yeah, these days. Right. Yeah, I, remember, everybody. Yeah. I remember you telling me the story of the time you did the pill truck traverse from Pinnacle Lake Pinnacle Lake Pinnacle yeah. Lake and you go up and over and you come up 
it's this beautiful the bathtub lakes yeah and uh, that you got back down to the parking lot on the other side and now how are you going to get back to your car and it's late in the afternoon yeah and it was a similar story to what mac just told uh, we th- a, a friend and i had done that traverse and and frankly we had never intended to um to make it a, a loop we we thought we'd just go back to our car at pinnacle lake but by the time i was at the lookout you know i was kind of pooped i was a little bit too tired and i that's a long 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 traverse back to the pinnacle lake so so I said, well, why don't we just go down the main trail here to the parking lot, and we'll find somebody that'll give us a ride down to the highway. And I don't know what I was thinking, because if you've left your car up there at Pinnacle Lake, you're a long way up a gravel road, yeah, right? that's deep. A and long probably way. Probably not as used That's as right. So um, we started walking down the trail, and as we got close to the parking lot at, on Pilchuck, uh, we, by then we were talking to some other people that were just ahead of us or something, and... And um, we got down to their car, and they opened up their tailgate, and they said, would you like a beer? And I said, well, what I'd really like is a ride down the road here because, uh, you know, we left our car further up the valley. And he said, well, where do you live? I said, well, I live in Lake Forest Park. And they said, well, we live in Lake Forest Park. I said, well, what street do you live on? 37th. I live on 37th. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was just a strange, strange element of surprise, what I love to be surprised about. And just because they ended up to be neighbors, we had never met one another in the big city, but we met out there in the mountains. I guess they felt obligated to give us a ride all the way back to our car. <laughs> so oh, they, they took us all the way back up the highway and all the way back up the gravel road and all the way back to the Pinnacle Lake Trail, and it probably took them an hour and a half out of their way, but it was just one of those pleasant surprises that you run into in the mountains. WaymarkGearCo.com. Go over there and check out the packs. Like we said, he has some offered there. A lot of different colors to choose from in the through 38 and 42 liter packs at 210 uh, and the 50 liter packs starting at 260. Uh, this little ad, we're going to talk about how you can get them very customized. And there's lots of links here on his website over at WaymarkGearCo.com. Go over to Mark's website and check those out. I mean, uh, he's got some really cool color schemes coming up. In the future, I know I saw down at PCT Days, he had his Sunset uh, model out. Uh, look for that in the future where uh, you can actually get multi-colors uh, within just a single panel, which is just, it, it, you can customize these packs like just absolutely crazy. So as far as the colors go and, the, and like the accessories I've talked about too. So go over there, at least check it out and follow on Instagram, waymarkgearco.com. Yeah, I remember picking up a guy. It was pouring down rain. We were up at, uh, I was actually hiking with my sister up at West Katy Ridge Trail. And, and that's pretty deep from uh, um, Index there. And we got to the trailhead. Like I say, it's pouring down rain. And this guy came out with his backpack and his dog. And I was in a little pickup truck. And, and he said, and I said, hey, how's it going, man? Everything okay? Because there was no other cars there. And we had gotten there pretty early. And he said, oh, well, I'm just hiking back to Index. I, I was going to hike in through to North Fork Sock Trail and, and this rain. I just wanted to bail out, and I live in Index. And, uh, I, or, or maybe he said Skycomish, but he, he, he could get a ride from Index. And, and I said, oh, okay, well, well, we can just shuttle you down. I think it's like 12, 15 miles. I can't remember exactly, but it's pretty deep yeah. on that gravel road. And, and he said, nope, I, I, don't, I don't need a ride. 
And my sister and I are kind of like, what? <laughs> like, we'll give you a ride real quick. We can still come back and, and do this hike. And he said, no, no, I don't want to ride. And, and finally, I just made him get in. And I took him all the way back down. But <laughs> sometimes people don't even want that ride. I mean, that's a long track. Strange, yeah. yeah. But any, either way, we, we did help him out and then got back up the trail. And, and, and those are kind of fun. Now, can you uh, talk a little bit? You also brought uh, this picture of Three Fingers. And that's a cool picture, too. You, you're actually on the backside looking towards Everett, and the sunrise is reflecting out the windows. Mm-hmm. And I really like that shot a lot. Uh, you mentioned that uh, that you went up and, and helped rebuild that lookout at one point. Yeah, um, that was back in 1986 when uh, um, I was contacted. Well, <laughs> long story, I guess. There was a... Wait, that's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lookout up there, the last lookout up there in 1945, 44, 45. Harry Tucker yeah. had had died that summer, I believe, 1986. Yeah. Maybe maybe died in 85. But anyway, his daughter, who had hiked a lot with him over the years and was herself quite a uh, active mountaineer, she wanted to see that the forest fire lookout on top of Three Fingers was restored because it was in pretty rough shape just from natural weathering and so forth. So I think she contacted, uh, I suspect she contacted Harold Ingalls up in Darrington because Harold was the ranger uh, who had been ranger from 1926 to 1956 or something and he was the still up there living as a retired person. Well, and hadn't he even helped plot out the spot to put the... That's right. That's right. Yeah, Harold had originally the first person to climb the mountain, I think. And Harry Badal, yeah. Yeah, with Harry Badal. But anyway, um, Harry Tucker's daughter wanted to restore the lookout as a memorial to her dad. But she was living in Montana with her husband, long way away. So uh, Harold Ingalls somehow knew that I had was interested in the lookout and had been up the lookout and that Mac and I had been fans of Three Fingers Lookout. <laughs> so um uh, what real quick, had you written the book or started writing the book I, yet? I was well into it at okay. that at that point. But almost not, not almost yet, finished. Not, not yet published. No. no, no. In fact in the book you can I think read a final chapter about the restoration of the lookout. I think that there's a chapter about that. Right. But anyway, um so, what was Tucker's daughter's name? Harry's daughter's name? Pat. Pat Tucker, yeah. So, Pat contacted me by letter, and, she, and her husband had done quite a schematic drawing of what needed to be done, and how much lumber would have to be purchased, and how much glass, and how much roofing material, and so on, because he was a pretty meticulous guy and a good carpenter. But they were in Montana. So my job, <laughs> my job was to recruit some people and to, um, and to assemble the materials and to raise some money. Not a whole lot of money back then. In 1986, you could buy a lot of material for a thousand dollars, you know. And we got some material donated by some local business people and so on. Um, but we still had the problem of how to get it up the mountain. Yeah. Luckily, the Everett Mountaineers, the, the bran- Everett branch of the Mountaineers, who are still active in, in uh, uh, maintaining and having control over the lookout, I think, they, they had volunteer people who could carry some goods. But um, 
the way it worked out was that I had a I had a brother-in-law in the time who lived at, at the time who lived in Darrington, and he uh, supplemented his income by doing uh, pack trains for the Forest Service or for hunter groups that wanted into the go into Glacier Peak Wilderness and so on. So he he had uh, some horses and some mules, and he had a friend uh, in the Darrington area who also had some horses and some pack mules. So. We uh, we assembled the materials in at my dad's house in Snohomish in the basement. We cut the materials to size and, and so on, and and oh, we so made up all pre-cut. Yeah, and we made up loads that were packable, and then we took the materials up to Darrington, and my my brother-in-law took over, and uh, we agreed upon a weekend when we were all going to get up there and and. Uh, get the stuff up as far as we could on the mountain. We had a false start, which was kind of unfortunate. Uh, we knew that the the regular Tupso Pass trail that takes you up to Saddle Lake and up to Goat Flat uh, would be too difficult for horses and mules, and so we had agreed that we were going to go over Meadow Mountain on the way to Saddle Lake and then Goat Flat. So the Meadow Mountain Trail was a much more... Uh, gentle grade and so on but um, we should have scoped it out better because we went out there one weekend with all the horses and all the mules and all the materials and we we only got a few miles up the trail when there were terrible windfalls oh, yeah. and so we had to turn around and head it all back and then we spent another weekend after that doing trail maintenance and and getting rid of the windfalls and then we came back on a subsequent weekend with the horses and the mules. And by then it was a nice sunny day. And um, we did have uh, we did have one one fortunate accident on the way up the Meadow Mountain Trail. Just because the tread was so soft, um, we had the mules were all tethered together in a train, you know. And luckily they were tethered together with with uh, cords or, or leather straps that were made to break in case one mule would be lost. And sure enough, one, one mule went over the side and tumbled down through the timber. And I, and I you know, my, my heart just stopped. I thought, oh my God, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. Luckily, the mule got back up on his feet and shook and shivered a little bit. And, and, uh, and oh, my, brother, wow. my brother-in-law was able to get him back up on the trail and get him retethered. And um, and then we continued on. I took that picture just as they were crossing Goat Flat. It's probably the first time, I, you know, the lookout was built with horses and mules back in the 1920s and 30s, but this was now 1986, and it was probably the first time that any horses and mules had ever been there. And I bet there haven't been any there since, frankly. We were only able to get the material just below Tin Can Gap, and when we ran into too much snow... And that's probably about as far as horses and mules ever went with materials anyway. I don't know. The Everett Mountaineers then, on a subsequent weekend, picked up the material from uh, Tin Can Gap and got it all the way up to the lookout site. The volunteers packed it in? Yeah. And then Pat Tucker and her husband lived up there for pretty much the month of August in 86, and they did all the carpentry. 
And they did a beautiful job, beautiful job. Now that's 30 years ago, so now the lookout was just restored again by another volunteer group, what, uh, the summer before last, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I know some folks that were on that crew, and uh, you know, it's a big pat on the back to them, because these there's not many of these lookouts left and and yeah now i think some people listening might kind of wonder okay well this is in 86 uh why wasn't there a helicopter that could just drop that and i think there's some stories behind that well i think they actually did they got uh drop some materials and but i think that had been uh we went up was it in 79 my dad, Jim, and and another one of Jim's bank friends who uh, I think never hiked again after that because it was it was ugly and it <laughs> and and it was sleet and snow the whole time and uh, he crawled into the his sack and I think he slept for eighteen hours while uh, we spent that afternoon hammering. Uh, plywood to close because had that the shutters was that when the shutters had yeah shutters had fallen off and so the cabin had uh, filled with snow I think it was and uh, oh, wow. a lot of the historical magazines and things had been destroyed and 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 we were feeling that it the uh, the cabin was in in you know right on the edge of tumbling into <sighs> decay and so we we I think the Forest Service dropped those. It could you know, be. I they, don't know. They lo- yeah, they were up there. But that was just a matter of replacing some shutters. I remember your dad was belayed. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, we, yeah. We, we, we belayed him with ropes while he went out on the east side and, and hung shutters. And he <laughs> we were belaying from the inside. And he, <laughs> was, he was <laughs> outside. But frankly, the reason we didn't use helicopters in 1986 was mainly because of money. It would be expensive right. to charter... Uh, a helicopter to do that. I mean, like I said, we probably did those repairs for a thousand dollars with donated material and donated labor, and even my, you know, my brother-in-law didn't charge anything for the pack services or anything. It was just a volunteer nice. effort. But uh, Bruce and Pat lived up there for the month of August, and they didn't charge anything for their services. But um, also, it's in a wilderness area, and so you know, you're really not to use mechanical equipment uh, in a wilderness area unless there's no other means or unless human life is at risk or something. So um, it, it could be that the, the group that did it the uh, summer before last, they did use helicopters or a helicopter delivery, and it could be they either received permission or maybe if the, maybe if the helicopter doesn't touch ground I, d- I don't know what the rules are in a wilderness area but no you, know, I, you yeah. don't use chain you don't use chainsaws right. and you don't use me- mechanized equipment and, yeah. and helicopters are generally uh, out they're not generally in the wilderness area I remember yeah. in the 90s we had a we had a nice view of Pilchuck from our house uh, we lived in Grand Falls and uh, well we had a nice view of three fingers as well and, and but uh, in the 90s when they rebuilt the Pilchuck, Pilchuck lookout mm-hmm. and they used a lot of helicopter on that one. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I don't know if that's because it's in a state park or. Yeah, what I, yeah, it's not a wilderness area, but Three Fingers is in the Boulder River wilderness area, right? Yeah. When I was in college, a, a group of us hiked up uh, Indian Henry Hunting Ground on, on Mount Rainier, Pyramid Peak, uh, 
not quite sure, but um, we were, um, the boys had gone up into the trees uh, to fight off, you know, to get away from the mosquitoes, and the girls on our trip, <laughs> we were in college, had, had gone down to the pond, and they were skinny dipping, and so we, we were out of the way, and we're swatting mosquitoes, and suddenly we hear this whoop, 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 and this huge Chinook helicopter comes in and then lands. And so we hustle ourselves down there, and by that time- well, They landed by the, by the gals? By the, yeah, oh. they, they had spotted the swimmers. <laughs> and they hadn't seen us. And so when they see the boys coming out of the out of the woods, their demeanor changes, and they were a little chagrined. I mean, for one thing, what they were doing was totally illegal. Oh, they yeah. and they were uh, reserve, yeah, doing a reserve weekend, and so they had hopped out of the helicopter, and when they saw us, they said, "You want some?" peach pies because <laughs> oh, they've been over to Yakima picked up a just a pile of peach pies and we said sure and they yeah. said well here you go and they hopped back in and took off oh wow <laughs> so, so they, they were probably flying over saw some some swimmers yes they did uh, and then they, they kind of stopped on by to see what's going on <laughs> well you got a pie out of the deal so oh yeah <laughs> it, you know speaking of Mount Rainier uh Jim you also have a, a picture here of an old lookout uh, they, they, you said they were trying to put lookouts on all the, the volcanoes? Yeah, I think it's historically accurate. You could check. There was one time a lookout on top of Mount Hood in Oregon, and there was a lookout on top of Mount Adams, you know, 12,000 feet. So there was a plan at one time, probably hatched back in Washington, D.C., to put a lookout on top of Mount Rainier. But uh, anybody who's climbed Mount Rainier would know how tough it would be to resupply a lookout or how to even to get lookout materials all the way to the summit it's 14,500 feet right yeah so, so a lookout did get put up on Mount Rainier and this this is a picture of the lookout on top of Anvil Rock which is probably at 9,500 feet or something below the 10,000 foot level and it's not there anymore but it was the it was the classic uh, Forest Service cupola style lookout house yeah that's cool well right on well hey guys uh we're gonna end it there and and what a great conversation it's fun uh it's fun hearing the stories and uh thanks for coming on the cascade hiker podcast it's our pleasure yes glad to be here all right that's the show thanks so much for tuning in don't forget to join the patreon page find me at patreon.com slash cascade hiker podcast also hit me up uh with an email rudy cascadehikerpodcast.com find me on facebook my facebook page is cascade hiker podcast twitter find me at in underscore cascade hiking and i'm cascade hiker podcast on instagram thanks whiskey fever for letting me use this track here tall grass off their album gonna wake up this whole town go find them at reverbnation.com slash whiskey fever hey see you next week you were sweet like honey on a heartbeat you were fine like wine in the sunshine I could feel you coming on strong Could never be wrong, could never be wrong
See her laying down in the tall grass Playing mandolin in a white dress So come running when I hear that song It could never be wrong, it could never be wrong Where you wanna run, baby, I'll run too I would leave this world for a beautiful girl If I could just find